This is the Escape the Zoo Podcast. With your host, Daniel Clark. Hello and welcome back. This is Daniel Clark here with the Escape the Zoo Podcast, where we interview leading wildlife photographers, conservationists, and scientists to learn more about the awe-inspiring species that we share this fascinating planet with. Guests of the podcast have traveled to the edges of the world to observe, photograph, study, and support wildlife in their natural environment, and as you probably can imagine, now have some of the most exciting, scary, crazy, extreme, and beautiful stories that I have ever heard. Today's guest is Anand Varma, a photographer with a degree in integrative biology from UC Berkeley. Now he helps biologists communicate their research through photographs and tell the story behind the science of complex issues. His TED Talk on the first 21 days of a bee's life is one of the coolest things I've ever seen. You have to check it out. I'll link it in the show notes. But we talk about that as well as mind-controlling parasites, hummingbirds, glow-in-the-dark mushrooms, and much, much more on this absolutely mind-blowing episode I'm sure you'll enjoy it. So without further ado, here is my conversation with the one and only Anand Varma. Well, thank you so much, Anand, for taking the time. I'm super excited to talk to you. I think you have one of the most unique styles of photography, especially in kind of the wildlife science world that I've seen thus far and really interested to learn more. But I wanted to start off uh, kind of with a topic that is most interesting to me because of a project that I'm working on right now, which is the overpopulation of feral cats in Hawaii. And one of the big problems there has to do with Toxoplasma gondii, which is a protozoan parasite that essentially hacks into the minds of rodents and other cat prey, making them more likely to be attracted to cat scents and then thus more likely to be predated on by a cat. And a lot of the work you've done is in mind suckers and one specific video that I saw was about a ladybug that was essentially turned into a zombie. Can you elaborate a little bit on that for me? Sure. I mean, I'm not sure how much background or context you want, but the the first story I photographed for National Geographic was on these parasites that have the power to control the minds and bodies of their hosts. So we kind of call them mind suckers for short. And, uh, yeah, there's a couple of examples that I photographed for that story that the parasite actually turns its host into a bodyguard. So in the case of this ladybug, there's a, a wasp that attacks the ladybug and, and lays a single egg in its body. And that egg hatches, and the larva feeds on the ladybug. It crawls out, and to transform into an adult, it has to stay, it has to go through this metamorphosis in a cocoon. And that's a very vulnerable stage of its life. It can't move. It's, it's focusing on changing into an adult. And it's figured out how to leave behind some kind of a signal uh, that controls the ladybug that's still alive, even though it's been partially eaten. And the, the ladybug hangs around and it, and it stands on top of the cocoon and wiggles its body to basically effectively scare off any insect predators that come by that is bizarre where was this 
Or where is it typically it's, found in nature? It's found in North America, this particular interaction. I photographed it in Montreal, uh, where a graduate student named Fanny Morey was studying the uh, ecology of this interaction. So she was finding that basically the the parasite has an incentive to keep this ladybug alive. So a lot of parasites um, of this kind, there's a lot of different wasps that are attacking prey and laying eggs in their bodies. And in most of those cases, those baby wasps, they want to suck every little bit of juice and energy and resources out of that host because the more they can eat, the more they can store, the more eggs they can lay in the future, more offspring they can support. But as soon as you are trying to keep this host around as bodyguard, you need it to be alive. And so she was looking at how this trade-off was playing out where the, the parasites that decided to leave more resources behind for the ladybug were more likely to have a protector, whereas the parasites that sucked more of that tissue that ate more of the ladybug were more likely that that ladybug would die and then they would be left alone. So she was kind of trying to tease apart some part of that biology. That is absolutely crazy. And yeah, it's pretty wild. Does the ladybug still kind of go about its business? Like, does it find food for itself or do, does it fly at in, all? Or does it basically just stay on top of this thing the whole time? In that first, in that week that it takes for that larva, to, the parasite to metamorphose, the ladybug doesn't go anywhere. Um, it just stands there. It doesn't eat. Uh, it just sort of wiggles around. And if the ladybug has enough kind of fat or, or resources to survive that week-long process, it can actually regrow its internal organs. It's, the mind control effect wears off, and it goes on and makes a full recovery, which is crazy. Wait, uh, so the then, ladybug will actually just become normal again? It can't. If, it, if it's able to survive that period, oh my if God. those baby wasps have eaten too much of it, it may starve in that week, in which case you know, it'll die. That's but, wild. Do yeah. they have any sense of like what the wasp does to the brain or at least uh, that there's controls a, it? There's a few hints. So they don't know the, the mechanism, how this happens exactly, but what they've identified is a virus that lives in the ovaries of the wasp and gets injected into the ladybug at the same time that its egg is laid. The wasp lays its egg. It, so then sends these viruses in there with them. Those viruses then migrate into the brain of the ladybug and they stay there. The, their presence in the brain of the ladybug corresponds to the timing of this mind control behavior. Mm -hmm. Which, and that means is that if this thing, the ladybug survives for that week, when it recovers, you don't find the virus anymore. Oh, interesting. So that's not enough to say exactly how this is happening. But they have other scientists have worked out how wasps and viruses work together to control their hosts, to trick the host's immune system and do all these other sophisticated things. These are with different wasps and different viruses, but that mechanism has been worked out in other places. Okay. So when they identified this virus and they're identifying these patterns, they're thinking that this is pretty strong evidence that this virus is playing some role. What role exactly, how that virus is doing this to a ladybug, 
there's still a lot of unanswered questions there that people are working on. And in those other examples where they, they find like a correlated um, virus that goes in, the, the virus somehow rewires the circuitry? Is that how it works? In the case, there's, a, for example, there's another wasp that attacks caterpillars. And what the virus in that case does is it helps uh, trick the immune system of the caterpillar to not be able to detect the virus, the, the, the wasp. So the wasp babies get injected into the, the caterpillar. And instead of the caterpillar just destroying those things as foreign objects, as disease agents, you have this virus that's able to help hide them from the immune system. And then it's actually also changing the metabolism of the caterpillar so that it's eating more in order to feed these uh, parasites. And it may be doing other things like preventing the caterpillar from uh, metamorphosing itself into an adult. So mm-hmm. it's, it's changing the kind of life trajectory of this caterpillar and it's changing the immune system in order to help serve the the wasp parasite so it's, it's actually three different things all right you know, a virus a wasp and a caterpillar all kind of uh interacting in a ridiculously complicated way it's, it's crazy funny. how i mean specific some of the these parasites can cause such specific behaviors in the host i mean when i was looking at toxoplasma i was it was the first time i'd ever heard of something like this and my mind was absolutely blown and then looking at your work i'm like oh my god you can actually find handfuls of examples of these out there yeah it's not rare it, it, it happens a lot of different uh there's a lot of different examples of these host manipulating or mind controlling parasites. So I want to dial it back now that we've kind of started off on a fun note, but kind of get a sense of what brought you into this line of work. Were you, were you somebody who has always had an affinity towards science and nature? Or- when it came to science uh, and the outdoors, it's something I've always, always been interested in. Uh, I grew up hiking around, uh, exploring my backyard in Atlanta. Uh, we had a, we, I grew up on a old, basically what used to be dairy land. Okay. And then it turned into a suburb of Atlanta. There's lots of woods and streams that grew up in this old fields. And so there were lots of salamanders and bugs and birds to find. It was just a fun playground for me. And it was some, something that my older brother and sister did. And so I went outside to follow them. My parents took us camping all my friends were into camping and outdoors. Um, my school promoted that too. I went to a Montessori school, mm-hmm. Arbor Montessori, that they took us on camping trips too. So every everything around me was about exploring the outdoors and learning about nature. And so that started at a very early age. And did you go to school for photography or, or more no, biology? I was, I was planning on being a biologist. Okay. So I went to Berkeley for undergrad with the idea that I would study biology, go to graduate school, be a professor somewhere. And, uh, I kind of got derailed halfway, <laughs> halfway in my, halfway through my time at Berkeley. And was there kind of a defining moment where while you were working at Berkeley, you kind of moved towards the photography direction was like, I can make a living off of this. Or was it something that was a passion project on the side and then just started to build up momentum? 
there wasn't a defining moment, but there was one opportunity that started this process going, started this ball rolling. So end of my sophomore year, I got an email from uh, a graduate student instructor, Sean Rovito. He, he wrote to me, uh, he helped teach a class on natural history where all of us would go out every week for four hours and uh, to a different park in the San Francisco Bay Area. And we'd learn how to identify birds and salamanders and snakes. And I had my camera along because it was a hobby. I, my first real relationship with photography was as just a fun way to document my hikes and adventures and uh, document the interesting creatures I found so I could show my friends who didn't go out that day. Right. And so I, I applied that approach to these field trips where we'd find salamanders and I'd photograph and say, oh yeah, this is what we found today. And this guy, Sean, he was helping teach the class and he saw me with my camera every week. And he wrote me an email at the end of the semester saying, hey, you know, this photographer is looking for an assistant. I see you with your camera. I thought this would be an interesting opportunity for you. And he had the phone number of David Litchwalker. Okay. And so I called him up. This is 2006 in the summer. And uh, he just needed somebody to carry a backpack for a, a project he was doing. I didn't mm-hmm. know what it was. I didn't know who he was. I went and met him at his apartment in San Francisco. And he said, yeah, this is a magazine story for National Geographic. We're going to go to Sequoia National Park and track down 28 species of cave-dwelling bugs. And uh, I need your help. That's cool. Get the, get the equipment down there to find these bugs and to help me take photographs of these. And so was so, this something that you had to leave school for or was it something you could do on the not, side? Not initially. So this was over the summer. It was just two weeks oh, Okay. In, in June. And so that was during summer break. We got along really well. I thought it was a blast. You know, I got to rappel into these caves. I got to look for cool bugs that scientists had just discovered. I got to work with a cave biologist. So the biologist in me was super excited to work on a, on a natural history story. The photographer in me was excited about seeing how a professional photographer lives and works. Mm-hmm. And, and I was getting paid for it. So, <laughs> right. Whoa, this is cool. Uh, and we got along well. And he invited me to, to Hawaii for his second story. And so that I skipped a couple weeks of school in September of that year. Well, that was pretty easy. I could sort of make up classes and, and uh, assignments. It wasn't too disruptive, but you know, the more I worked with him, the more I wanted to work with him, mm-hmm. the more he wanted to work with me. And so, um, that was junior senior year. I basically withdrew from Berkeley. Okay. I had two classes that I needed to finish to graduate and I finished those. Actually, one was an international studies class, which I got the Dean to just wave. I was like, okay, I'm going to go to South Africa, Costa Rica and Polynesia this semester to work for National Geographic, <laughs> or I have to say right. no to that in order to take an international studies class at Berkeley. They're <laughs> like, you know what? I think we're standing in your way. Why don't we just decide to not? Right, do that, that seems fair. And then I took the other writing class online, and so I graduated on time in four years. But my last year was traveling, working on another couple of stories for, with David. And at um, that point, were you like, this is what I want to do? I want to go this way, or was it still like, this is fun? I'm just kind of sticking with it for now. No, it was actually a really hard, it was really hard decision to stick with photography. Well, 
where where was it? Really? I mean, I was stuck in between these two modes where, on the one hand, what I was doing at the moment was as fun, as amazing, as exciting as anything I could imagine. Flying all over the world, climbing trees in the Costa Rican rainforest and snorkeling on the French Polynesian rain, uh, coral reefs. I, I couldn't believe how much cool stuff I was getting to do. Right. At the same time, I did not want to be a photographer. I did not want the instability and insecurity of a freelance career. I saw how David lived. I mean, he was a successful photographer. He had been for decades and he was still kind of stressed about where the next paycheck and where the next job was going to be right. coming from. And so at that time, I still saw photography as a way to inform where I was going to go to graduate school and what kinds of questions in biology I was going to be interested in. And I saw this photography assistant gig as a way to just have a broader perspective on science and natural history. Each of these stories was about natural history. Each of them put me in contact with a biologist from NOAA or from the Park Service or from uh, independent consultants. And I thought, okay, I'm getting an experience here. I never got it as a student at Berkeley. And four or five years of this is going to mean when I become a graduate student, I'll have a way better sense of what interesting work is happening in the world. That makes sense. And did you ever go to graduate school? No. So initially, <laughs> I was like, I'll take a year off after undergrad. And then I was like, how about two years? And then how about three years? And eventually, just, I thought, you know, I don't think I can go back. This is, this is too exciting, too much fun, too much freedom to really choose what projects I want to work on, who I want to work with. And so it, eventually, I just kind of committed to making a go at photography. And I got more and more opportunities. I got to work for other photographers as an assistant. I eventually got a grant from the National Geographic Society called a, an early career grant. And just, you know, I was getting encouragement from all sides. People liked my photographs. I was getting funding to do my own projects. Uh, and it just seemed like this is working out. So as long as it's working out, it should stay the course. Right. And was there a, a time when you got one gig? Like, What was your first gig that you were assigned to do on your own where you made that step from assistant to the lead? So there was a bit of a transition there. So I was assisting for a while. I got my grant was kind of the first independent photo project. So mm -hmm. I applied at the time it was called a young explorer grant. Um, and they gave you $5,000 to go do a field project. It's now called early career. They give you, I think five to 10,000. And I proposed a project to go to Patagonia, the okay. Argentine side, this is, you know, Southern South America, and to photograph the wetland biodiversity that lives in this region. Mm -hmm. And so doing that, it's not quite the same as an assignment, but it meant I could come back, to, I could go to D.C. and I could show, show my work to editors at National Geographic and say, this is what I've done with your grant money. And they didn't publish those photos. But it opened the door in the sense that um, they knew who I was. They were interested in staying in contact. They saw some potential. And so they started, you know, just saying, okay, well, what are you, what else do you want to work on? Mm -hmm. And so the first assignment I got was a one-day assignment from an editor at National Geographic to photograph fire ants. 
in Atlanta. And this happened again pretty, um, uh, just really lucky timing. Mm-hmm. So what had happened is she had gone to another photographer who I was going to work with, Maria Stenzel, and asked her to photograph these ants. And I was with Maria at the time, and Maria said, you know, I'm too busy, I'm in the middle of moving, but this guy who's working for me, Anand, is going to Atlanta next week, that's where this lab was that they wanted to photograph these things, so Maria just said, why don't you hire him? And because I had been an assistant for so many years, I had worked a lot on macro photography, right. uh, I was this young explorer, that sort of, that timing and that past experience sort of came together to give me that first gig and that turned into a couple more and that those one day assignments then uh meant when i pitched or brought up this idea of parasites uh they were willing to take a chance on me i was more of a known entity than just a a random grantee or a photographer and where do you go about looking for stories that compel you enough to say i want to pitch this like you're talking about wetlands and patagonia and mind controlling parasites that seemingly are in very diverse spaces. And then you have hummingbirds and mushrooms and bats. It just seems like, is it usually something where Nat Geo is like, okay, we need this type of thing, or is it something just really scratches an itch that you need to go and uh, explore a little more? I mean, really all the projects that I'm proposing come from conversations with biologists. So Mm -hmm. conversations with friends of mine, that's where this first mind sucker story came from. Uh, one of my friends, Sarah Weinstein, who is a, a classmate of mine at Berkeley, went on to do her PhD on parasites. We were just having a conversation one day. She said, you know, you've got to do a story on these crazy mind-controlling parasites. And she, I'd known about one or two of them, but she gave me examples of a few more. And uh, I thought, yeah, wow, there are a lot of crazy examples. I wonder how I would photograph that. And hummingbirds was... Similar, I had a friend, Chris Clark, who was a graduate student at Berkeley when I was an undergrad there. And I followed him around with a camera, and he started including me on grant projects. And so I would travel with him. I still am traveling with him all over Central and South America, tracking down hummingbirds. That one couple- hummingbird shot at 3,000 <laughs> frames a second is insane. Oh, thanks. thanks. Yeah, yeah, absolutely so that, all insane. that comes from you know, working with these scientists and seeing what the work they're doing, what the work their colleagues are doing. And so I'm kind of this bridging this gap between the science that's already been done and then recognizing, wait a minute, there's visual potential here that the scientists aren't taking advantage of. You know, they, they've discovered that this is how a hummingbird dries itself off, but the cameras they're using to analyze that are not as high quality, high definition, you know, in color. And so I'm just bringing in the tools from the photography industry to make this stuff look cool. Well, it makes a lot of sense knowing your backstory now as to, I think your photography specifically has such a beautiful marriage between the science and the photographs, which is a really kind of niche type of, or or unique approach that you take to it. Um, So going a little bit back onto the parasite, what what do you think is the most mind-blowing or interesting one, crazy one that you've found? Um, I think... Probably, they're all amazing in their own way. This emerald cockroach wasp is one that felt the most sophisticated. So this is a a wasp that attacks cockroaches. And uh, 
because the cockroach is too big for it to overpower, it's figured out how to design a venom that can take control over its brain. So what it does is it has special sensors on its stinger and the wasp sticks its stinger into the brain of the cockroach. The sensors feel around so that it can figure out where exactly in the cockroach's brain to target. It then injects this venom that knocks out the cockroaches, the part of the cockroach's brain that controls the motivation for movement. So rather than just paralyzing the whole cockroach and dragging it off, which it can't do, the thing's too big, it just turns the switch off in the brain that lets the cockroach decide to run away by itself. Wow. So it's just sitting there, and then the wasp tugs on its antenna. And somehow that stimulus is, there, there's still a bridge in the cockroach's brain that takes the stimulus and it tells the legs to start moving. Right. And so the the wasp has figured out how to basically rewire this cockroach's brain to listen to its stimulus instead of the own the cockroach's own uh, fear response or or decision making skills. So that's crazy to me that 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 a little bug, a little wasp, can make these very specific changes in order to eat a cockroach. I mean, in this case, it's <laughs> right. laying its, its egg there and, and the egg eats it. But you know, think about a lion or a tiger, you know, okay, maybe there's some sophisticated coordination happening with the lions communicating with each other to, to sort of attack the zebra and, and outsmart it. But this is like a whole, whole different level. And we, we, we think about insects being sort of simpler, dumber animals right. that are just kind of flying around and grabbing stuff and eating it and and mammals and birds being so much more intelligent and um, sophisticated. And I'm not saying that a wasp is necessarily more intelligent, but it's figured out such a complicated way to overpower its prey. It really makes me rethink how the diversity on our planet is organized and how the the complexity of our planet is way more way kind of underappreciated yeah it's it, absolutely wild i mean the, the nuances and how interconnected and balanced everything in the world even i saw that photo you had of was it a mite or something on a hummingbird bill in, yeah and can you elaborate as to like how that mite survives Sure. This is one I photographed in Colombia. And actually, it's very common. I don't know if all hummingbirds have uh, mites living in their nose, but it's, it's very common where there's a whole group of mites. These are tiny, you know, relatives of, of ticks that uh, are so small, they live in the nostril of a hummingbird. And they don't actually feed on the hummingbird. They're not really bothering the hummingbird as far as we can tell. They feed on flowers, on nectar and pollen. Mm -hmm. They just use the hummingbirds as transportation. And so they can detect when a hummingbird is feeding. And when they detect that the hummingbird is sticking out its tongue, they jump out of the hummingbird's nostril and they run all the way down its bill to jump onto the flower. And you have other mites that jump onto the bill and run up into the nostril. So if you've ever seen a hummingbird 
feet on a flower, it's, it's, it's what, a tenth of a second? Right, it's fast. A quarter of a second per flower. And so in that time, you have a tiny little bug running up and down their hummingbird's nose, uh, hummingbird's not, uh, bill. Um, and so, you know, it's a, it's a, at a certain scale, you know, our planet becomes very bizarre. <laughs> yeah, in in the more you can humanize an animal, I feel like is the level of intelligence that we typically attribute to that animal. And so insects just seem so far removed from anything that you would view as normal human intelligence that you just think they're small and but the systems that they've created whether i mean intelligence might not be the right word but the systems they've created are so complex and what they do is so fascinating that it never ceases to amaze me yeah definitely so and on the insect front um i saw your ted talk on bees which was great and I know bees are a subject across America that people are starting to get growing concern about with, I think Honey Nut Cheerios even removed the bee from their cereal box for a little bit to bring awareness. Can you talk a little bit about what's going on with bees and um, have they rebounded at all since your TED Talk? I think that was in sure. 2015. So, um, you know, the, the story I did on honeybees for National Geographic is one of the stories that uh, National Geographic actually asked me to photograph. So mm. I both propose stories and they asked me to cover stories and you know that was a challenging story to do just because that issues around colony collapse and and honeybee declines had already sort of been out for about 10 years 2005 2006 that's when these issues first came up at the scale that we're seeing them now and a lot of stories had already been done, and I was kind of struggling to figure out, well, okay, what can I contribute to this conversation? Hasn't right. everything already been told about what we know? So I took a certain track of uh, visiting scientists and showing their tools for studying honey, honeybee declines. And in a certain way, my understanding is that the issue has stabilized. Okay. In a sense, it's not getting worse every year, but it's stabilized in a place that's very challenging for beekeepers compared to, uh, you know, the 90s and early 2000s. And so beekeepers are losing a bigger chunk of their, of their colonies every year than they used to. And they're able to then uh, replace those bees that are lost by splitting their hives, by kind of growing up their population again. But mm -hmm. if you're losing more and more a bigger chunk every year, you have to put way more resources into managing the pests and the pathogens and the, and the stress levels around your bees. And you have to put a lot more money and, and uh, hours into managing them. And that becomes uh, financially really difficult, economically really challenging. So, you know, the honeybee is not going extinct anytime soon. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's, that's an appropriate way to think about this issue. Um, but the way that I think about it is that we have become so dependent on this one species to pollinate a lot of our food that our system of our, you know, our relationship to bees and how we use them to produce food has not particularly resilient. Right. We're so focused on on using these bees kind of to, to help us. And we've so focused on 
um, selecting for certain traits of how much honey they produce or how gentle they are. Um, we, we created a system that was not particularly resilient to new diseases and new pests and new pathogens. And so there's, there's a, there is a serious issue about like trying to maintain a, enough bees to meet the pollination demands of our food supply. Uh, but there's a lot of issues around that. Uh, in addition to the pesticides that are out there and, and right. the diseases that are out there about how we, how we, uh, raise bees and how we, um, how we sort of think about that system more broadly. How would big ag, uh, pollinate crops without bees? Is that even possible right now? Is there technology for that? Um, so for the, the crops that need insect pollinators, you really, you, you really have to rely on native pollinators if you don't have honeybees. And that's what we used to do. I mean, we right. used to, there used to be tens of thousands of species of insects that we relied on to, that were already in the environment that would pollinate our food for us. And so as we changed how food was grown, we kind of pushed a lot of them out. And that's why we are so re reliant on honeybees now. So without honeybees and native pollinators, native bees, um, then you're kind of relying on hand pollinating, which is what some parts of the world that put too many pesticides out have, have had to do. And actually, it's important to, to point out, I think, um, beekeeping doesn't really happen at a uh, in the same way that we think about uh, corporate agriculture. So there's, there's really no corporate beekeeping that happens. Right. It's all essentially family run businesses that some of those businesses are very large scale. You do have commercial beekeepers, mm -hmm. but even though, I mean, I worked with Brett AD who along with his brother runs 70 to 90,000 beehives. So that's not a Damn. small no, operation, but it all. is something that his you know grandfather started. And so it's, to keep bees is a very intimate process where you get to know these animals and you you have to care a lot about them to to be able to maintain them and to be able to maintain that business and so it's actually not something that gets done in a way where there's you're sort of just hiring out a bunch of people to do a job and, right. and you have investors to make money off of selling honey or pollination services there's just it's just not profitable enough to attract that kind of scale and investment. Um, and that's part of the challenges around it is that beekeeping is becoming a harder and harder business to stay in because of things like colony collapse and, and mite problems and all these stresses. And so that's one of the factors that makes this challenging is like as bees get harder to, to keep alive, it makes less and less sense and less and less attractive to bring new beekeepers into that business. And so there's all these factors, kind of environmental factors and economic factors that swirl together to make this uh, complicated and, and in, in, in a lot of ways interesting, but yeah, important. I honestly had no idea that beekeepers were even used on the scale that they are until Netflix recently released a documentary called Rotten. Have you seen it? I've heard of it. I haven't seen it's it. It's all about how... Uh, uh, there's a lot of conspiracy and a lot of honey that's produced around the world and that uh, particularly in the East, there's a lot of fake honey being sold um, to the Western countries. 
but it, it talks about even when these beehives collapse, how much money that's lost for like a mom and pop shop that might be um, harvesting or raising bees. But also there's a lot of theft that goes on where beekeepers have actually gone, set their bees out to pollinate these crops and then come back and some other beekeeper just taken $300,000 worth of bees from them, which is, it's a, it's a scary thought. I mean, I guess if you're intimately involved, you understand the behavior of bees a lot more. But for me, the idea of letting out a hundred thousand dollars worth of bees in the hopes that they're just going to come back to their hive must be like a, something that, that worries you every day. Yeah. Yeah. It's not a, it's not a business I would get into if, if you're trying to make money yeah. easily. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think that's a cool example too, where a lot of times, especially with urbanization being such a, a, a huge trend around the world, it's, it's easy to lose sight about why wildlife is important. And I think something like bees is a great example for the fact that without a a healthy bee system or insect pollinator system, they're they're huge uh, downstream effects to the human population. Yep, for sure. So I want to go in a little bit about uh, a story I saw you did with bioluminescent mushrooms and when I saw it, I think it was still pretty early stage in the the research behind it. Just interested to see if there's a little more. But in a nutshell, where was it in the Amazon? That was uh, the Atlantic forest of Brazil, so the east eastern coast of Brazil. Yeah. Okay. There's essentially these mushrooms that glow in the dark, and scientists at the time didn't know the reasoning for the the luminescence. Yeah, so that was actually the last story that I assisted David Litchwater on. So that was his, he was the photographer for National Geographic. And I, had, at that time, I had, my role was to shoot the, the video for these projects. And so I made a short video um, working with, the, with the, the biologists who are trying to unlock this ecological secrets of these mushrooms. So these mushrooms produce their own light and they were trying to figure out, okay, well, why would you, you know, that's, that takes a lot of energy to do. It takes a lot of resources. So why would you do that? There's got to be some reason for producing so much light. Um, and I'm trying to think, you know, that, that was several years ago and I think there have been some updates on that. I haven't, I haven't stayed completely on top of where the latest research mm-hmm. is at the time the thought was maybe this helps spread their spore. They're attracting insects and the insects are picking up um, their spores and helping them spread through the forest. Uh, There was another hypothesis that maybe, you know, there's insects that are feeding on this fungus and the light attracts predators to come in and hunt those insects. Mm-hmm. And so I don't know if they've collected enough information and enough data to really answer whether either of those things is happening or if there's a third hypothesis. I, it's something I haven't checked in on in a couple of years. But um, and just another example of just really cool, surprising science out there that, you know, these mushrooms are bright enough. You, you go out on a moonless night and you can just see these little glowing green orbs. It feels like you're walking around and avatar <laughs> <laughs> oh so they're not i assume they were like you find one like they're hard to find like you go into the right places and you can see them all over the place well i mean 
it's not necessarily like a forest that's right. that you, you can navigate based on the bioluminescence, but uh, I mean, we found dozens of them. Yeah, and they're oh big, God. you know, big, uh, three or four, maybe even five inches across is the largest one. And um, I mean, yeah, you can see them glowing with your naked eye. It's not a, it's not a subtle. Something I'm really interested in in, in photography um, of the natural world in general is kind of going through that forest with the bioluminescence at night, but also. I listened to a podcast you had sent me that you were on where you were talking about one of your first assignments going into, uh, I think it was French Polynesia and filming at night in the ocean or photographing at night in the ocean. Both of those scenarios seem very scary to me. Like just, I don't know, there's something about being part of the world that you're not quite as accustomed to being in and it's dark and there's creatures you're looking to photograph that you're, you're not sure where they are, or where they're coming from. Do you feel that at all? Or is that just a, a switch that you, you can't turn on if you're in the line of work that you are in? I do, and I find it interesting to be just uncomfortable enough to be focused. You know, mm-hmm. I, I don't necessarily seek out dangerous situations just for the sake of the thrill of it. But being out on a reef at night or being in the forest at night it's unfamiliar and uncomfortable enough that your senses are tuned way up. Right. And you're super aware of everything that's happening and you're just nervous enough that it's a little bit, it's just a different way of being in the world. Mm -hmm. You know, you're, you're just much more present. You're much more, um, focused on every detail and every all your sensory inputs. And I think that's a really, interesting it's a stimulating and exciting way to explore a new place um but i don't necessarily like being in a dangerous situation right or in a unsafe situation where you're not properly prepared or you haven't done the research and you're not in control over the the risks that that are there uh, or not aware of even the risks that are there um i'm not i don't think of myself as reckless in those ways but i like um being prepared and then pushing my comfort zone just enough to feel like i'm i'm learning something new and and experiencing something new have you had an experience where it kind of ventured too close on the danger side yeah yeah early on um after my young explorer grant in, in Argentina, a volcano erupted in Chile right next to the place that I had spent a few months. And it, that volcano dumped an enormous amount of ash over the course of a year. And actually six months after it, I decided to go back. So this eruption happened and this ash continued to flow. And as it was coming out, I decided to go back and photograph how this ash was changing the landscape. And towards the end of that trip, I had been working, you know, hundreds of miles away, and then I decided, okay, I should photograph this volcano to mm-hmm. show what the source of all this ash is. And um, I did a little bit of research. I found a trail that would go towards this vent where this ash was spewing out. I talked to a volcanologist. I couldn't, I wasn't able to put together a team to go with me. This was low budget and early in my career, and I didn't really know what I was doing. And 
So I went off by myself with a little bit of background information and having talked to local experts. And I had protective gear with me. I had a mask and, a, and goggles. But the wind turned and it kicked up all this ash and it meant I couldn't see anything. Oh, and my, uh, my ventilator clogged. And I thought I was suffocating. And I just thought, and, you know, I could feel the oh, grit of so the ashes just ground up sand or ground up glass. Right. That gets in your lungs. It's really bad for you. And I could feel it in my mouth. So I knew it was getting in my lungs. And I, and, you know, it, 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 I could, I felt weird. And I don't know how much of that was my own hypochondria and, and imagination, but I felt like my lungs didn't feel right for many months, maybe even a year. And I spent that year thinking about, okay, well, I'm still alive, but did I do, you know, long term damage to my health? just to get this one photograph and right is that worth it obviously i i believe in making sacrifices to to do good work but you know sacrifice can mean you get two hours of sleep a night or you work really hard or it means you know you, you shorten your lifespan right, right and that's the first and I'm, you know that happened early on in my career and that changed how i think about risk and risk assessment and um and uh, what, how, how I make decisions when it comes to my work and, and my life. So how'd you get out of there? Was, was there a point where you're like, I'm going to suffocate? Or was it a pretty there quick There was thing? a moment that I thought that. Um, but I had brought the right tools with me to get out of there. So I had a GPS that I had recording my path the entire time. So when the visibility dropped, I could follow that, okay. that sort of breadcrumb trail because I couldn't see anything. I couldn't, you know, my trail was covered. There was no, there was, my path had been covered. I couldn't tell what direction I was looking. I, I, I could see a few inches in front of me. And so I had a GPS that could help me backtrack. I had, um, I had enough cartridges to my ventilator that I thought I was suffocating, but when I changed them, I could breathe okay again. Okay. Uh, it, it turned out that I had enough of the right, tools I'd prepared enough ahead of time to get me out of that situation. That is scary though. Yeah, that was the first time that, you know, I had enough time to think through the consequences of my decision. Sometimes, you know, an accident happens in, in an instant and then you, you figure out how to recover from that. This kind of unfolded more slow motion. I thought, oh, <laughs> hmm. okay. Yeah. What have I done here? Right. Am I going to get out of this? How is that going to work? And if I get out of this, how how would I do things differently going forward? I mean, um, yeah, it's a it's a good lesson to learn, I guess, in hindsight. Yeah, definitely. I wanted to talk a little bit too about. Uh, I it sparked my mind when you're talking about Chile is uh, the amphibians in South America in general. I just finished reading the sixth extinction probably six months ago or so. And I had no idea that amphibians were suffering as much as they are and are one of, if not the fastest declining class of animal right now. Mm -hmm. So just was interested to, in your work down there and any updates on that. Um, I haven't worked on amphibians in South America specifically. I did work with, uh, a number of years ago with Vance Friedenberg, who was studying chytrid fungus. So this is one of the big drivers of amphibian declines is this fungus that 
um, infects their skin and it, and it kills them. I, I think it. I again, this is again something that I haven't kept up on in the last couple of years, so I don't know what the latest mm-hmm. theories of its origin or what the current effects are. Uh, it's not. This is a fungus that that is new to North and South America. Uh, at least the current form of it is new, and it was really just wiping out populations and species left and right. Where and, was this? Um, uh, throughout, I mean, I photographed Vance's work in California. Okay. Uh, but this is, you know, chytrid was spreading through Central America and into South America, and so there were frog extinctions in, in Panama and Costa Rica I know of, and I believe in, in Ecuador as well. Um, now, whether that's those declines have slowed, I hear less about it in the news right now. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to know when that's because a problem has gone away versus there's the news has just shifted to other problems. Right. I, so I haven't kept in touch with with Vance or other kindred researchers to know what the last that I heard is that there were you know this this disease sweeps through a population. Um, some species go extinct. Many of them get knocked back 90, 95%. Damn. And then you have few tiny little populations that somehow survive that have resistance to it. And so I know that they had identified a couple of these in California where you know, they thought the mountain yellow-legged frog was going to go extinct. And uh, they were able to identify some, some places where for some reason they were able to survive. They were designing strategies to try to protect uh, populations that hadn't been infected yet. So I photographed mm-hmm. this experiment he did where he figured out there's some of these frogs that survived this this wave of, of fungus infection had a bacteria in their skin that prevented their, them from getting killed from this fungus. Okay. So he would figure out how to take that bacteria from one frog in the lake and put it on all the other frogs in the same lake. So he would grow the bacteria in the lab and go back out into the field, catch all the frogs, put them in little Tupperware containers, give them a bacterial bath, and that saved that group of frogs oh, wow. from the next year when the, the fungus came through. So there were there were still, but that wasn't necessarily going to work in, in Madagascar or in Philippines or in other places where chytrid was feared to, to do the same damage. And so the last kind of check-in I had that there was promising results of new treatments, but there was also complications of how to scale that across the world. And right. um, I'm not I'm not currently working on on amphibians at the moment. So. What what is uh, next for you? What do you what's uh, the next big project? Um, I'm not sure. I'm I'm um, spending a lot of time with David Gruber at the moment. He's a marine biologist who studies a wide range of really fascinating things. I mean, he he worked a lot on bioluminescence and biofluorescence, so identifying different compounds in corals that fluoresce and and even turtles. Oh, and wow. Um, thinking about how, how, uh, what role that plays in the ecology of, of coral reef systems. And so we're thinking about doing, uh, a collaboration in the future together on some sort of marine biology topic, but that's still early on and I haven't really figured out, nailed down what the next project is going to be. I was just talking with, um, 
someone yesterday who was saying they just found, I think it was a bioluminescence if you shined a UV lights down in puffins up by Alaska, their bills, those like brightly colored bills. Yeah, so that would be fluorescence. So oh, fluorescence, sorry. Is, is you're putting out your own light, and fluorescence means you're taking cert, certain wavelengths of light and reflecting a different uh, different color. And so oh, that would okay. make sense with puffins. Birds can see ultraviolet light uh, that we can't. And so they're communicating. I mean, there's more to their color and their plumage than what we can see. And so that's, I don't know that case specifically but what that would mean is that you know if you're shining uv light on them and it's reflecting back visible light um it's telling us something about a secret way that their patterns that they're seeing and and communications that they're having that we're not aware of and that's very similar to what uh david gruber's work has focused on in the past underwater in what in turtles specifically there is there's bioluminescence and where have they found that in, so there's fluorescence. Oh, in fluorescence sea in, in sea yeah, turtles. And, and Sorry, so that keep... means that, you know, it just means that um, there are patterns on their shells that they can see that we can't. And okay. that's helping them camouflage and as well as uh, communicate. Oh, wow. In ways that we didn't know before. If, if you could, this might be a hard question, but if you could think of one day that you've had as a wildlife photographer that was your most exciting or interesting or... Uh, exhilarating does is there one memory that comes to mind i think my the memory that sticks with me is one of the strongest and the most surprising was this night on morea morea is an island in french polynesia and i was working as an assistant and i was i was collecting the creatures that passed over the spurton spot on a on a reef and I would go there during the day, I'd go back at night, and I was there at night, and I had very shallow water, not way out in the ocean, next to the coast, and uh, I had a flashlight and my snorkel, and I would just watch these creatures appear in the beam of my flashlight, and the stuff that showed up out of the darkness just felt like I was flying through outer space looking at aliens. I mean, baby pipefish, just... Uh, a baby flounder it was about an inch long, totally transparent, landed on my goggles. Wow. Uh, my mask, you know, uh, a nudibranch. This is a kind of a relative of snails and slugs that lives in the ocean. And it was, had these purple polka dotted flaps that it was pulsing to move through the water. I had no idea what it wow. was. You know, it's just this weird thing that I caught and I put it in a jar and it would settle on the ground and turn from like a radially symmetric flapping donut into this snail that or slug that was sort of cruising on the bottom. And the, the way that they would transform when you put them in a jar and the details you could see once you got up close and looked at them under a microscope, it was just like, you know, I'd been interested in the ocean and I'd had kept aquariums and I knew a lot about, you know, the biodiversity of coral reefs. But to then be there and see a whole nother layer of diversity and complexity and beauty uh, was astounding. And it, and it has stuck with me for 10 years now. That's amazing. 
I've been dying to, I've never scuba dived and I've really wanted to get down there just because it is funny. It's, I think the underwater is literally an alien world that so few get to experience like that. Yeah, absolutely. So when we talked uh, a couple of weeks ago, we were discussing kind of the intersection between conservation and how you view your work in in relation to conservation. And I thought it was a really cool and unique perspective. Sure. I mean, so I don't, I mean, obviously I care a lot about the conservation of our planet. Right. I don't necessarily label myself as a conservation photographer. And I typically don't talk about conservation directly. So when I do a story about hummingbirds, I'm not doing a story about how to protect hummingbirds or about endangered hummingbirds. Um, and likewise with parasites, I mean, these are not species that need protection at the moment um, for the most part. Or I'm not necessarily focusing on that angle directly. That's not to say that I don't think that's important or that I don't really value and celebrate the photographers out there who are really focusing on conservation issues and talking about conservation and elevating that in society. I just feel personally that I don't necessarily respond to that that kind of messaging very consistently. So what I mean by that is when I see um, stories about polar bears or about elephants or about endangered species that have a very um, direct sort of conservation appeal, I find myself not responding emotionally. Like I, I, I feel kind of that I've already been saturated by that kind of messaging and that's those stories. I think, okay, I kind of know what to expect or I, I don't want to feel this way right now or I'm tired of feeling guilty or afraid or scared about this or worried about this and I don't want to deal with this right now so I'm going to go look for another story or I'm not going to finish the story because I just, it's off-putting to me. And so the way I think about how I want to communicate and the stories I want to tell, I think about how do I focus on celebrating diverse, diversity and sparking a sense of wonder and curiosity? And what I hope is that by doing that and by trying to build relationships between people in the natural world, people will find their own motivation to conserve what they care about that's that's appropriate for their context that's appropriate to their values and um i'm not telling them how to how to feel about a certain thing or how to prioritize the the resources in their life i just want to get people to be curious about the world and and do with that what they feel is right i think there's a really important piece to that where I was talking the other day with a, another wildlife photographer and we were discussing how 
disconnected a lot of the the human world is now with nature and that a lot of conservation and the love for nature comes from a sense of wonderment and excitement about the planet earth and a lot of times creating that conservation can also be elevated through creating wonder from species that aren't necessarily um, struggling. Like for instance, like when I first found out that a hummingbird flapped its wings, however many times a, a second, I saw a hummingbird outside my window when I was hanging out in New Hampshire and I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. And like, it, it helps to fuel the fire as to just caring about the natural world. So I think there, there's a really important piece of that. That's it's, it's beautiful in a way that it's um, allowing people to connect with the world around them in a way that's positive and and really just gets people excited about it. And in turn, I think that it helps to solve the issues in the same way because it gets people caring or having more of a reason to care about the species that are struggling. And there's definitely an equally important uh, place to, to learn about that and understand that and figure out how you can help that. But I think a lot of caring about those issues comes when you have a genuine um, love for the world and finding out stories about just how amazing animals are and how unique they are and how specialized they are creates that sense of wonder and appreciation. Yeah. Do you know Tim Ferriss? He's my favorite podcaster, but um, I don't. he's the guy who wrote four hour work week. Um, okay. But he, he interviews a lot of people who are top performers in whatever field and kind of dissects uh, how they become so efficient at what they do. But he mm-hmm. always ends his podcast on a question, which was if you could stick a billboard on the middle of the 101 or the middle of the highway that people could go by and kind of preach one message that you would like to uh, kind of disseminate into the world, what would that be? I would say, I mean, my my best crack at that would be pay attention to the details around you. I think that's what has driven my approach to photography. That's what has been the most rewarding for me is to focus in on one thing, on on a subject, on an idea or on a, even just a, a flower, a piece of bark and you slow down and you, you sort of just sit with this thing for long enough. And and it's not hard to find something new. And in, in, in my case, my work, it, I end up sitting with this thing for months or even a year and I'm trying to unlock as much new visually interesting things there. But I think you can do it every day. I think you can do it anywhere. And I think at least for me, finding those like little visual puzzles and gifts in the objects around you and the creatures around you, it's just endlessly fun and rewarding. I think that's great. And I think it's a great parallel to have everybody who doesn't know or hasn't checked out your work before to please do it. It's some of the macro uh, photography and videography on your website and on your Instagram is some of the most fascinating stuff I've ever seen, especially, I mean, my personal favorite, if you go to the Ted talk and watch the first 21 days of a B, that was some of the most insane footage I've ever seen. And, uh, if, if you look at your work, I think paying attention to the details is something that certainly, um, is a good message, uh, to end this podcast on. And I, I really thank you so much for taking the time 
And is where can people find you? I mean, I'll link everything in the show notes, but if there's anything else to kind of keep in mind. Yeah, uh, website. I think honestly, Googling my work, my, I'm sometimes not as up to date on my website as I should be. So um, if you Google my name, you'll find all my work at National Geographic's various media outlets. Um, and yeah, that's probably the best way. Well, thank you so much for all the work you do and for taking the time to chat. Uh, I'm a huge fan and really stoked that we were able to sit down. And for everybody, until next time, stay wild. Thank you so much for listening. I honestly cannot express how much I appreciate you taking the time for all information regarding this episode's guest, social channels, books, how you can support, etc. Please check out our show notes. If you enjoyed listening, please, please, please subscribe to the podcast. We are everywhere that you can find podcasts. Subscribe to Escape the Zoo on YouTube, follow Escape the Zoo on Instagram, like Escape the Zoo on Facebook, and please share with your friends. It honestly goes so far and means so much to me. And lastly, if you'd like to be emailed with each new podcast and any other major Escape the Zoo updates, visit escapethezoo.tv and sign up for our email list. Thank you.